This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The victims are typically young women, many of them runaways and prostitutes. The sheer number of murders raises suspicion that a serial killer is at work. The mountains of Washington offer some excellent terrain for hiding bodies. You're not finding a large number of bodies. He said to us, like, why would I change the way that I kill these women? Because it was working. I had a problem with killing women back then. Do you think of that as an illness? I don't know. If it wasn't on this, or I just wanted to kill, so. Nineteen eighty-three is a momentous year in King County, Washington. Local tech startup Microsoft announces its new Windows operating system. Boeing manufactures its one thousandth seven thirty-seven aircraft and the Seattle Seahawks make the playoffs for the very first time. But there's a different story dominating the front pages. The Green River Killer is a constant presence from the morning papers to the evening news. But the reports aren't about a far-off conflict or an upcoming election. This is a relentless reminder that someone in the community is murdering young women and getting away with it. I want to know what the media scrutiny is like for the detectives on the case. What is it like for the journalists in the trenches? And I want to understand the fear the public felt living in a world of murder. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer. Episode 3, Murder in the Media.
Ever since the first body was found in the summer of 1982 along the Green River, we've been on an emotional roller coaster as detectives try to pin down the killer. There have been scores of composite drawings. Dozens of possible suspects have gone through interrogation. All were discounted. And while the search continued, the list of victims grew, starting at 7, now totaling 34. And nearly a dozen more are missing and believe victims. The task force says the case is of the highest priority. Now some 50 detectives are working full-time to catch the killer. The task force commanders speculated that the case would be solved sometime this year. The number of bodies being found in 1983 is off the charts. In the history of the United States, nobody before or since Gary Ridgway has committed as many murders in such a short period of time. While Patty Eakes would eventually be on the prosecution team that puts Ridgway in prison for 49 life sentences, in 1983, she's a first-year law student in Seattle. I ask Patty what's it like living with these horrific discoveries. It was definitely... Um, shocking when the first bodies were found, but then that was just really the beginning of the tip of the iceberg. You know, it seemed like these bodies were being found constantly. There'd be something in the news about a body being found. There would be canvassing of the area, and next thing you knew, they'd found, you know, additional sets of remains. Um, so it was just a very unusual thing and extremely alarming to those of us in the community just not to understand who and and why this was happening, and oftentimes the bodies were so in such a state of decomposition that it even took a while to identify who these women were. Twenty years later in 2003, Gary Ridgway confesses to Patty and the prosecution team interrogating him about why he killed and his cold-blooded motivation to kill so many. It was just killing them in his killing spree of killing... Maybe one time I thought maybe he was going for the count. I want 100 this year. Mm-hmm. I want to be the best serial killer out there. Just wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a serial killer today? No, I didn't really think about it. I just knew I was in the mood of killing, so it uh, it's just so serial you killer. become a serial killer? Basically in, in uh, 82. Yeah. When did, you knew, when did you know you were a serial killer? Uh, probably sent them back to the uh, victims after I had five or six of them underneath my belt. The number of women being murdered is so high, it's hard to cope with, even now. But there's a side to the media coverage that makes me uneasy. I continue with Patty to find out if the fact that the victims were predominantly sex workers influenced the way they were being reported and if people use that to block out the horror. I'm sure you are so aware, you know, hearing it, reading about it, studying this case, your mind immediately goes to he's picking up sex workers. Um, That, you know, makes me worried that maybe the investigators didn't take it as seriously or the public didn't take it that seriously. But then you dial it back. Some of these are just young girls. They are not women. They're not women. They're little girls on the streets or not on the streets. Yeah. Definitely. I think a lot of families did feel like their daughters, their child, you know, their sister was disregarded because of the perception that perhaps they had been engaged in risky behavior, had put themselves into a situation that allowed them to be victimized. And and that's just a really unfair characterization. You know, it's an unfair approach and attitude for people to have. 
that somehow these women brought that on themselves or were somehow responsible simply because they had very difficult circumstances and, and found themselves, for most of them, I think, you know, in desperate straits and doing what they could to survive. Absolutely. And I think it also puts the investigative team in an unfair light. Yeah, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, the people who were involved in investigating the case for all those years really dedicated their lives to trying to solve the, the case. And it didn't matter to them uh, what profession the women were in. They just really wanted to get the predator off the street and uh, get some sort of justice. Of course, a balanced, empathetic view like Patty's doesn't sell newspapers. But angry women and lazy cops is a story. News 4 brings the news home. A small group of angry women said today, three years is too long. They want arrests. The theme was frustration. Oh, they can put more people on the case. They can be more serious about the case. Uh, a lot of people feel that because these women are prostitutes, it's, it's not a serious crime. That if the women were, were white, upper-class women, that there would be more of an outcry about these murders. The task force is one of the largest ever assembled, spending $2.4 million a year. For that much, you expect results. Like Patty, I don't doubt the motivation of the detectives on the Green River Task Force. But as the body count keeps climbing, frustration boils over. The media and the community focus on the cold, hard truth. The Green River Killer is still killing. The pressure on the detectives is huge. With every day that goes by, another young woman can be murdered. I talked to King County Sheriff's Office Chief of Investigations, Faye Brooks, about coping with this job. Faye, how do you balance the pressure of the job, the horror of what you're investigating, and having a life outside the Green River case? So one of the tips I had was I would, on my way to work, I would leave all of the stuff that had happened at home on the road and pick up my thinking about safety and protocols and policies and procedures on my way to work because I knew that that could impact me, it could impact the people I work with in a very negative way if I wasn't focused on work. So then when I came home, on my way home, I would do the reverse. I would leave all of the stuff from work on the road, and then as I got closer to home, pick up the Faye mom-wife issues yeah. or conversations and not bring the work home with me. And I, I know I did a good job of that because when I was the media officer for Green River, my husband would be asked frequently, so what's going on with that case? Because I know your wife is the media officer. And he would look at me and say, I have no idea. Because I find uh -huh. out just like you in the paper. She doesn't talk to me about that. That sounds sensible. And my daughters, um, because they were at the age that were the targets for this killer when they were growing up when I was on the case. And so I, I made it real clear to them without going into detail about what was going on out there. And that was when uh, phone calls cost a quarter and there were phone booths everywhere. <laughs> and so I made sure whenever they left home, they had at least one quarter so that if something happened, they could call and we would come get them, no questions asked. Good. And if you go, you say you're going somewhere and then you change your mind and you go somewhere else, it's not that I'm trying to 
be nosy, but I need to know the last place you were. <laughs> and Absolutely. so they understood that too. I'm fascinated by these kinds of details. Faye probably knew better than anybody else what the Green River Killer was capable of. Yet she's got to keep what she knows from her daughters and even her husband so that they can have a normal life. But as even Faye concedes, making sure your daughters always have a quarter to make a phone call, living with a serial killer on the loose and in the news changes everybody's behavior. The next clip is a news report from a camping spot in the beautiful Green River Gorge just outside Seattle. Green River Gorge Resort is 100 years old, but in the last couple of years, the number of people who come here has been dropping. This part of the Green River near the resort is more than 15 miles from where the bodies were found. But the owner of the resort says a lot of people still believe the killings occurred near here. We're named the Green River Gorge, and when people think of the Green River nowadays, they think of the Green River murders. It's the first thing that comes into their mind. The resort's campsite has only four tents this Labor Day weekend. Usually there would be 15 or 20, but the Green River murders has some people scared. It's crazy to think that people changed their vacation plans because of the Green River Killer. But it goes to show how pervasive the actions of one individual can be on the behavior of an entire region. The impact of the news is one thing, but I want to find out what it's like behind the scenes. What's it like for journalists reporting on one of the most prolific serial killers in American history? Tomas Guillen, author of The Search for the Green River Killer and Seattle Times crime reporter in the 80s, talks to me about reporting the case. Tomas, you must be walking a tightrope as a journalist. Because on the one hand, you've got to have good relations with the police department, but then you're also responsible for reporting their performance cracking the case. What was that like? You know, you do have to get along with them, but in cases like this, basically, they're going to turn their back on you. They were already mad at the media because of Bundy. They thought mm. the journalists in Seattle had done them wrong. And so it was real hard because we have to do our own investigation separate from theirs because we have to dog them. They're spending $2 million a year. The public wants to know how they're spending it. And then after a few years, the public's wondering, well, why can't they catch this guy? They want answers. It sounds like you're running your own task force in parallel with the police. It's tough duty because everybody and their grandmother is wondering what's going on. One thing that we did, the editor came to us and says, well, you know, what's the latest? Why can't they catch him? So basically, police aren't going to tell us anything. They're not obligated to tell us anything. However, they have to tell the public how money spent. So I use that technique, and I put in a public records request for every penny spent by the vice squad, which that was a group of investigators on the strip, closest to the women. We wanted to know what were they doing. You know, yeah. it's kind of blaming them, but you know, well, what are you doing to solve this case? And so we took that database, and then we took all the missing persons reports, and then put a timeline where the girls were and everything else, and married those two. That told us where police were or weren't when the girls were abducted. And we found out that basically police were simply going about the business of arresting women for prostitution, going to bars, buying drinks, and then arresting the women. And they were doing nothing. So our story said they were not looking for the killer. Oh, wow. That must have caused some problems, ruffled some feathers. Well, the cops weren't uh, friendly or uh, happy, but, you know, that was our job. That's what we were supposed to do. That's interesting. 
wow, you must have been very busy at the time and it's hard work. Was it tough to stay emotionally grounded when you're the one who's actually understanding what's happening to essentially your neighbors? It is a lot of work and people don't realize the journalists are not saying, you know, pat me on the back, please say I did a good job and all that. They're not saying that. I'm just saying, so you have a task force of 50 people, they're hard nosed, they're not giving you information, they keep finding bodies, so that's one pressure. And then the editors are wondering, well, you know, what's going on out there? What do we tell the public? At the Seattle Times, we wanted to write a story about each victim. We just didn't want to write that they were found and they're dead. We would try to find relatives to write a feature story. So you have to go out at night, knock on a door. There are crying family members and sisters. And sometimes they grab your hands and they say, kneel down with us and pray with us. And that is very, very hard. So basically you're out there meeting all these families and they're crying and asking why. And it, it's a, it's a pretty traumatic. And so a lot of digging to get that. To find relatives alone was hard. Yeah, I can imagine. So it was real hard work, but we did it. So basically the stories were running a lot on the front page. Hearing Tomas describe the work he put into writing features that would put each victim's life on the front page and not just their death, brings me back to Ted Bundy. I continue with Tomas to see if his efforts are in some way a reaction to how differently the media portrayed Bundy's and Ridgway's victims. How did the Bundy and Ridgway cases compare from a media perspective? Well, there's a lot to each case, you know, commonalities, differences, but essentially, with the Bundy case, the media did write a lot. And basically, it scared Seattle because, of course, you had co-eds. You had the young ladies who were trying to uh, uh, go up the ladder academically. And so it was more of a scare when the stories were written about disappearances. It was different from Gary Ridgway because Bundy actually was short-lived in a sense. He had 74, and then he goes to other states. So it wasn't ongoing decade after decade, like Green River. I mean, everybody and their grandmother, international media came to Seattle almost every time they found a body. So every media had stories. So it was real hot for police for decades here, media-wise. The coverage of the Green River Killer is so widespread, it sparks a bizarre chain of events that blindsides even the task force's top investigators. That's up next. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Just two and a half years after the first bodies are found, the list of victims attributed to the Green River Killer stretches to over 40 women and girls. But the disappearances seem to have stopped. The task force is still under enormous pressure. Local and national news broadcast every detail of the investigation from Washington state to TV screens across America, even to a prison cell in Florida. King County homicide detective Robert Keppel is at his desk one October morning when he is hand-delivered a letter. It's from a wannabe consultant on death row. He says he can help catch the Riverman. The author is none other than Ted Bundy. Bob Keppel heads to Florida to hear what Bundy has to say. This is a tape-recorded interview uh, between uh, Bob Keppel Dave Riker and Ted Bundy. The date is 11-17 of 84, and the interview is taking place in the Florida State Prison. Let's say he's continuing to kill. Okay. Still in the Seattle area. Mm -hmm. And we found these locations out here. What do you forward his next step be? To go with what was working. And, uh, you know, he moved up east of Enumclaw. He's going deeper into the mountains. He's going, he's trying something new. He's trying something different. This guy is learning. He's trying to find the best way to dispose of his bodies he can think of. How familiar is he with those those guys? You think they're accidental finds? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm pretty sure I guess that this guy may not select these dumb sites with the precision of a geographer or a surveyor, but it's clear that he's in something that places he's searched out and looked over in daytime and nighttime. The places he's been back to many times after, obviously. The interview recordings between Bob Keppel, Task Force Detective Dave Reichert, and Ted Bundy in 1984 contain moments of incredible insight, but overall are a minefield to interpret. There's no disputing that the situation is unique, but what Bundy says is a cocktail of compelling admissions, half-truths, and outright lies. Ted Bundy is a psychopathic serial killer, He's going to be braggadocious, and he's programmed to lie. 
and he also likes the limelight. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if he considered the interviews to be a performance. Here's some more. Oh, well, there are an infinite number of ways to explain how a man can come to the point where he destroys human life as this person has. Finding for whatever reason, however he got to this point of killing prostitutes. It may have been a deliberate determination on his part that these were easy prey. It may be that he has something specifically against yeah, yeah, don't overlook the fact that he's come off of And in many respects, he is, in fact, as normal as anybody else. But this guy has lasted long enough that he's not a raving maniac. He's not obviously disturbing, in my opinion. Because I think that he would have come apart. He would have made a, a, a more serious mistake. Now, Bob Keppel was a smart guy and something of a pioneer in the field of serial killer research. So he's gone to see Bundy with an open mind, but just the act of doing it made the news. Tomas Guillen gives me a better idea of how the public and the media felt about Bob's trip to Florida. What was the general opinion of the public after the news broke that Bob Keppel traveled to Florida to interview Ted Bundy of all people? Well, the public and I kind of thought the same way, you know, he was just trying to use police and the media to not get the death penalty. The bottom line is that goes into a big, big area of who serial killers are and how they behave. And he was pretending, he was lying. If you look at the holistic thing, uh, he was trying to tell police, this is how serial killers think. You know, to be honest with you, I think Bob Keppel, that went over there and David Riker, they should have because you're trying to grab at straws. You're trying to understand the mentality. They were lied to. Uh, they got a little bit better understanding of serial killers, but, you know, they're so individual. Yeah, that's right. You know, one thing about the confessions, Bundy didn't get away with it. He got charged, but he got death. Gary lied just as much, but he, he didn't get death. You know, he bargained. So who's the smart guy here? They keep showing Bundy as the law student, debonair, you know, handsome guy. They keep showing Gary as his IQ was 42. He stuttered. He got teased. He was afraid. He was bullied. But Gary won. Wow. What do you think about that? What do you make of the disparity in their sentences? With Bundy, he basically got death. He was trying to cheat the electric chair there at the end by lying to people and teasing people. He wanted a few more months. He wanted a few more years. But he could have started talking a long time before. But that is interesting. Both of them deserve death, but the person who was seen as the unintelligent person won. Actually, Gary, I don't know if I should put it this way, he was a much better killer than Bundy was. If you look at both people psychologically, you know, Bundy was, he actually, something fell out of his brain and he started killing and he was going crazy. He was going to get caught. He was just a messy, he was beating up people, bludgeoning them, here and there, leaving all sorts of clues. If you look at Gary Richway, my gosh, the guy who isn't supposed to be smart, he had patience, he planned it out, the locations, he went back. I mean, I'm not trying to compliment the guy for killing, but if you're going to compare two people, it's Bundy, who they say is the better, the better killer or, or the, the most fascinating, and he was going to law school. We deceive ourselves. That's a myth. I love hearing this. 
It's so fascinating because it's like the world has it wrong. And in fact, if you look at Gary, you look at all the ruses he had, all the connivingness, the lying he did. My gosh, you know, he worked, worked, worked. The main ingredient, he was patient. Bundy was just violent. He was impetuous. And that's the bottom line. And that's how we killed, in fact. And here we are, how many years later, and we're still fascinated with Bundy, who was a law student, who was handsome, part of the Republican Party. You know, these images just live on. Tomas Guillen's ultimate comparison of Bundy and Ridgway comes from a place of huge experience and has the headline appeal you'd expect of a seasoned journalist. In pure media terms, though, it's Ted Bundy's story that has held the greater degree of fascination. Dan Sewell, an APTN reporter who followed him closely in Florida, reveals his feelings about why that is in this interview. Order in Miami. Uh, I was in a secondary role covering his uh, murder trial in uh, for the 1978 Chi Omega murders. That was uh, of two sorority sisters in Tallahassee. I did various sidebar stories. I talked to his mother who was there, I think pretty much every day. And one of the more interesting stories I did was uh, these teenage girls and young women who were often in the audience uh, every day in the courtroom, sort of mesmerized by Bundy who was dapper and handsome and kind of self-assured bordering on cockiness. And so there was sort of this odd attraction, just kind of this uh, fascination with him. Three days after he was convicted, I got a interview in the jail with him. So that was really the only time I talked to him directly. You know, at, at the end of the interview, I uh, kind of left with that same uh, perplexed feeling so many people had with him. It's like, how does this guy who's just kind of so friendly and interesting to talk to and kind of really engages you. You know, how does he do these brutal, gruesome things that he did do? And I, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, it's very hard to resolve that. And that's one of the reasons why he remains so fascinating and is subject to books and movies today. Dan Sewell's conflicted, romantic encounter with Ted Bundy and Tomas Guillen's reluctant praise for Ridgway's banal, hardworking approach is about more than just the killers they reported on. They're both reflecting a fundamental appeal of serial killers in the media since the 19th century. Serial killers are both monstrous and at the same time, perfectly normal. They're not cartoonish or outrageous in appearance or behavior, but we know they're capable of inhuman acts of murder. Gary Ridgway's perfectly normal credentials are second to none, allowing him to shrug off questions about Marie Malvar in 1983. But there's a chink in his armor. Ridgway's frequenting sex workers when they're on high alert for a killer brings him more police attention. In February 1984, a woman reports Ridgway when she becomes uneasy about the way he approached her on the Pacific Highway Strip. Ridgway is questioned and sits for a polygraph test which he passes. His name does go on the suspect list, but so are a thousand other guys. Here's Tomas again on Ridgway's anonymity, even as a suspect. What Gary did was inundate the system with suspects, victims, quantitativeness. They couldn't keep up. 
to be honest with you, there were too many suspects because there were too many mean guys. On the strip, you found all sorts of sexual deviancy that you could imagine. So try to pull out your suspect from some of that. You ask the girls, well, who beat you up last week? And they say, who beat me up last night, you're saying? Oh, my gosh. Ridgway must feel untouchable. He's escaped the clutches of police a second time and passed a polygraph test knowing full well he'd murdered about 40 women so far. But his body count is one victim fewer than it should be. Rewind to 1982, just a few months into his killing spree and barely in the double digits. One woman got away. Terrified of being arrested for her line of work, Rebecca Garday keeps her story hidden. But now she's seen enough and tells the task force everything they need to know. Can her testimony break the case wide open? Next time, as the Green River Task Force builds its investigation on the back of Rebecca Garday's story, I also hear from Carol Durant, who escaped from Ted Bundy's VW Beetle and helped put him behind bars. Mind of a Monster, Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer is brought to you by Arrow Media for ID. Your host is Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.